So anything that's going on in me that I hope to see if it can resonate with and for someone else, it's going to have to be uh, conveyed in the language of sensory experience. This is This Choice, a podcast that asks writers how their work with poetry influences the choices they make in their daily lives. Does poetry help them live the good life? This is Ren Powell, and thank you for joining us. This week, I'm talking to the poet Jed Meyer. Jed lives in Seattle, where he is a psychiatrist with a therapy practice, and he teaches at the University of Washington. His poetry collections include Watching the Perseids, which was the Sacramento Poetry Center Book Award, the chapbook The Nameless, which was published by Finishing Line Press, and the limited edition handmade chapbook Between Dream and Flesh, which is forthcoming from Egress Studio Press. Among the honors he has received are the Southern Indiana Review Editors Award, the Literal Latte Poetry Award, New Southerners James Baker Hall Memorial Prize, and Blue Liar Review Longish Poem Award. His poems have appeared or are forthcoming in journals such as Poetry Northwest, Rattle, Prairie Schooner, Nimrod, The Greensboro Review, Crab Orchard Review, and Valparaiso Poetry Review. So jumping right into the conversation with Jed Maya. I'll start the way I always start and ask you when and why you started writing poetry. I really was writing poems as a little kid, and I was writing songs then too, and uh, and I would show the poems to my mom, and I would uh, you know show them to teachers in school, mm-hmm. and uh, I would get my friends to sing harmonies to the songs I wrote in the neighborhood, doo-wop harmonies, ah. and, and when I look back, I think, you know, I like every human being was kind of desperate to be heard, to be known, to, you know, for sort of another human being to kind of get what's going on inside of me. And I also felt a kind of a disconnectedness in my family. And I think I wanted to play some role in my fantasies in the family, uh, being more emotionally knit together. And and I, I loved it. And I got positive feedback uh, at school. And I kept writing poems all along. I, uh, you know, I was writing them throughout high school, throughout college. I majored in the subject. Um, and I always uh, did it uh, as like just something on the side, you might say. And uh, I wrote occasional poems for weddings and funerals. I, you know, got to read poems at the births of children and all kinds of, you know, transitional occasions. But um, then 9-11 happened. And... Uh, I watched my kid watching the people leaping from the building to escape the fire, leaping to their deaths. And and I saw my kid uh, burst into tears suddenly days later and not know why. And that period of days uh, had an effect on me, which uh, remains with me, which is... Uh, and the best way I know how to put it is it broke me open and meant to me that there's no sense in holding back with any kind of uh, creative uh, 
expression that we're capable of, that uh, the only way we're all going to know that we're one human being on this island is through arts that uh, share the interior, you know, uh, it, with others uh, so that others can feel that connection from, you know, interior to interior, uh, across cultures, across time. Um, this is the very stuff of human connectivity, after all, and and we need more of that if we're going to have any kind of hope for a peaceable future. And I just feel it viscerally ever since 9-11 and just stay with it and try to get my work out there and get to read and try to curate and host and, you know, do all I can. So were you publishing before 9-11? No, no. I mean, not really. You know, my poetry teacher put a couple of things of mine into a little rag he was editing, but uh, back in college, but that, that, it didn't, you know, there's a high school literary magazine, but I never really avidly sought uh, to join the community of publishing uh, poets, uh, writers before 9-11. How old was your, you said your son? He, he was my middle of, of three. And so, uh, let's see, maybe 11 or 12. So when you say that you wrote as a child, as a way to reach out to your family, to feel closer to them, were you conscious of that as an impetus, or did is that no. something you look back now and see that's why you did it? Yeah, it's it's retrospective introspection. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. did that come after nine eleven, or were you aware of that before that? You know what's what's interesting is um, that motivating thrust within me. I had no articulation for to speak of until I read an essay by Donald Hall. Uh, called The Third Thing, in which he uses an expression of, I'm kind of condensing a little bit, but he says, poetry is the company of tears. Mm -hmm. And talks about poetry's power to uh, capture uh, complex emotional states and, and make them available across space and time uh, amongst and between human beings. And... I, I latched onto that phrase. I wrote little essays about it. I gave little talks along lines of that. And clearly I was very excited because it resonated for me. And, um, and then many years later, very, very recently, uh, I, I wrote an essay that got into the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I drew upon that phrase again. And Donald Hall got in touch with me and we've been corresponding. And he says he completely forgot that he had ever coined that phrase. <laughs> I reminded him of it. And I said, well, that's wild, you know, because <laughs> it meant a lot to me. Yeah. And now yeah. I see it everywhere. I, you know, read Gregory Orr's work and I read the work of other poets. And I see that it's really, it's almost a kind of a, a given, you know, whether people say it outright or not. But many poets who write about poetry do say that this is about being less alone. Uh, this is about our finding our common humanity uh, through personal experience, through mostly the personal lyric. And when your family, was it just, I, I know this is personal, so you don't have to answer, but I was wondering if when you were younger and you wanted a closer contact with your family, was it because there was a physical distance in your family as well as an emotional distance? It, it wasn't much in the way of physical distance, except that my dad was you know, pretty much the standard workaholic and often left before I awoke and often came back after I was asleep. But my parents were loving, enthusiastic, responsible, dedicated, devoted, beautiful people. Mm -hmm. 
they just didn't have uh, the inner uh, space and freedom to reflect and wonder about their own or others' uh, hard-to-articulate feeling states. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of families. But for me, it was like, I ain't settling for this, you know. <laughs> I wanted us to understand each other. I was the family therapist by the time I was four, you know. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> how how does that uh, fit in with uh, this book that you've written now about your father? Watching the Perseids. Yeah. yeah. Is this still a, a way of reaching out to your father? Well, um you know, it's interesting. I, I I learned that he had a glioblastoma. I knew right away because of my medical training. That means he's going to die in a few months. Mm-hmm. And so I resolved to myself then and there, I'm going to write poems along the way through his dying. And, and I did. And I, and I, I relied upon it, I think, uh, very deeply as a way of coping with his, his demise. And than with his absence, and um, and it meant a great deal to me as well in terms of what you're asking, uh, to be able to offer some of those poems to my brother, my mother, uh, a couple of them to my father while he was still, you know, able to cognize, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and to close friends. Um, I think the very act of writing about difficult experience invokes implicitly an other. The very act of making words means, at least in imagination, there's an other being addressed who will understand, who will potentially grasp what you're experiencing and articulating. And so there's a way of being not isolated. However alone you are, when you're really writing a poem. And I think it helped me tremendously to be engaged in writing the poems of my father's uh, dying and, and, uh, and goneness. And I still do it. I still write poems about that. Now I'm writing about my mom. She's gone. You know, and I write about the past a lot. I write about a childhood that's lost. Uh, you know, it's still there when I'm writing about it, and I'm still there, and, and at least in imagination, I'm definitely connecting with you know, all the figures uh, that I might otherwise not be in contact with. Hmm. If it's not emotions recall, recalled in tranquility, like Wordsworth said poetry is, yeah. do you feel more vulnerable when you present these now, when they're written in the moment of pain and suffering, and you present them to strangers? Well, you know, there certainly have been times I've broken down when I'm reading a recently written poem before a small gathering. Mm. I don't let that stop me, shall we say. Yeah. Um, I think that that vulnerability, even that shaky uh, feeling of maybe terrible exposure, is part of the cost of that depth of connectedness. And I like to think that, you know, if I'm shaking loose in front of other people, that, uh, that they'll, they'll shake loose a little, too. Uh, this has been my experience, uh, all in all, that the more of that risk I can take, 
the more help I might be to the people who are gathering around me. Mm. And um, I'm fairly practiced uh, by, uh, by personal bias and by profession and intention uh, to cultivate a mutual vulnerability. You know, I work as a therapist and, uh, and I like intimate closeness with people. And, you know, I, I think I want to sort of feel that resonance, that heart to heart resonance more than I'm afraid of embarrassment. That's beautiful. Do you do you get that response? Do you feel that uh, people open up and feel vulnerable when you're in those positions reading? Well, you know, I had a wonderful experience not that long ago in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I, I sent some poems to a little annual literary journal contest thing, and they gave me the prize. And so I, I took the invitation and flew down to Louisville. And there was a gathering and a little pub, you know, uh, for celebrating, you know, the poems that they liked and included. And I, I felt so remarkably encouraged by this particular lovely little crowd um, that I read with more heart. And the more heart I read with, the more they just relaxed their jaws. I mean, a bunch of them, you know, and the more they relaxed and kind of opened their eyes wide and glistened a bit, the more open-heartedly, I read each word. And, you know, it felt like a kind of uh, a, a profound confirmation of this notion that, that you know, if I can leap out of my skin a bit, you know, with the words of my writing, that others are moved to, uh, to come out of their skins a bit, too. And, you know, you know, you can feel it, you can see it in faces, you can hear it, in the out-breath, you know, at the end of a poem, that kind of stuff. That's very interesting because I'm so occupied with the way that words can be a metaphor for our physical selves and and the way to connect with the physical world. Yeah. And you're talking about coming out of the skin. And yet this book, this collection about your father's illness is very much about physicality and being right. in the world physically. Because emotional experience is in the senses. It's all, always in the senses and of the senses. So anything that's going on in me that I hope to see if it can resonate with and for someone else, it's going to have to be uh, conveyed in the language of sensory experience, of a physical language. I mean, I think poetry has discovered that over and over through the centuries and across cultures. There's no question about it. You know, uh, uh, William Carlos Williams, you know, put it nicely enough when he said, no ideas, but in things. And, you know, why that's, that's been a great guideline for me. I don't believe in it rigorously. And I think that complex thoughts and ideas and reflections belong in poetry, too. Um, uh, there's a lot of that getting done that I think is wonderful, but it's all woven very intimately in with objects of the world, the body, sensations, the senses, smells, sights, uh, the feel of something in the hand. It's It's got to be. That's really the, that's how we, I mean, the, there's a theory of emotion that I think is a true theory that says we only know how we feel by how we feel. 
by what we feel like doing or what tingle is happening inside or how fast the heart is pounding or the sweat on our brow. I mean, how the hell else do we know what to say when we say, I feel that, that I feel scared. Why? I, I know I feel scared because my stomach's in a knot, you know, mm-hmm. that's how we know. So that's the language that poetry has available to itself for this kind of purpose. And you mentioned breath in passing, and I'm wondering if you feel that poetry readings and gatherings where people actually are breathing and saying the words heighten the experience of poetry and connection through poetry. Oh, well, you know, I I don't know what your experience is, but mine throughout the years is I can read, you know, a hundred poems by a given poet. And I'll give it a good read, and I'll try to say it out loud, and I'll try to feel the breath in it, and I'll do all I can, and I'll get something out of it for sure. I'll get enough out of it that I want to go hear that poet when he or she comes through town. And then when I go and sit there and just let go and listen and watch and experience that poet's actual bodily offering of that poem with that poem's poet's own breath and timbre and everything Oh man, I'm getting those poems. Um, now I get it. Now I know where they're coming from. I know who they are, what they feel, and it's breathtaking. You know, it's it's the difference between the reading and the hearing, and that for for me the, the the writing and the saying. I think it does come to fruition when I get to get together with my friends at the local open mic night and 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 say them. Then I know does this have wings or not. What does it need? Is it is it there yet? No, it's not there yet. It it didn't quite really take take wing yet, you know, or it did, whatever. Yeah. Do you speak aloud when you write? Yes, it's 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 quite necessary. But the problem is, I also write in pubs as well as alone <laughs> at home, and so I have this way of covering my mouth, you know, and doing it kind of quietly. But I have to hear it. Uh, so, are and, you the town eccentric? <laughs> I'm I'm the, uh, the 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 not yeah at the counter there at the local pub yeah but but people seem to not mind one bit no you know? <laughs> they come over and pleasantly bother me about um, what am I writing now it's great oh that is wonderful <laughs> yeah um, do you still use music yeah a lot I still you know I play guitar and harmonica and I love to sing and always have. I loved to sing and, you know, picked up guitar as a kid and harmonica as a kid. I'm very active with friends, you know, local, like informal stuff uh, all all the years with music one way or another. And one of my involvements with music and poetry is uh, a couple of friends and I, a good number of years ago now, we started this thing called called Band of Poets. And we, um, we put music and poetry together. We create musical soundscapes that we feel might uh, help a poem come across, you know, and we get the occasional opportunity to do that, a little you know, summer poetry festival in town or, or some theater or pub, you know, it's, it's wonderful fun. Oh, I'm envious. <laughs> is that, is any of this a video online or? There's some really low quality videos that you could probably dig up. Yeah. If you look up Band of Poets, okay, Seattle, okay. they're very low quality videos, but they're there. <laughs> Yeah. And what about uh, choral work? You said that when you were little and writing doo-wop music that you had people oh, sing yeah. the harmonies. Do you, have you thought about or do you write participatory poetry, poetry that 
involves other people? Uh, only very, very occasionally. I mean, I have. There was one opportunity I had for a little, uh, again, an annual arts festival in town. And I, I participated in it every year since its, its inception. And one year, no, two years, um, I, I wrote extended pieces that had multiple voices and kind of staged them, you know, with instrumentation, visual backdrop, a little bit of a, a plot thread, if you will, you know, and multiple voices and very satisfying stuff. Very, very exciting. Very, very uh, gratifying. Yeah. Do you think there's a move towards theater in your future? I don't really think so. Uh, <laughs> because, like, I'm not in my 30s. I'm in my 60s. And and to me, I mean, I might have many years ahead of me, uh, but I've settled into a way of living in which the private pursuit of poetry is very, very central. And I just love this. I mean, if somebody said, hey, man, we need you to write us a play, you know, I would do it. And I have play ideas in my head. I have short story ideas. I have novel ideas. You know, I, I do write the occasional song still. But most of all, and by far and away, I just want to write the next poem, you know. <laughs> How it's often not. do you write? Do you write regularly on a schedule? No, I don't need a schedule because I'm going to do it anyway. I just do it. I, I write in the morning before I get out of bed. I write between sessions with my patients during the day. I write while I'm having lunch. I write while I'm having dinner at the pub. I write in the evening back at the house. I wake up in the middle of the night and I write. By writing, I mean, I might be editing something. I mean, I might have written 14 lines and I'll take a week to kind of try to get them, you know, kind of composed as well as I possibly can. And I'll come back to that, you know, six months later and recompose it. And sometimes it changes into something entirely different. So, you know, we're never done with these things. But but if we put all that under the heading of writing, then mm -hmm. I'm doing that. Like, I'm doing it constantly. Yeah. And always have. It sounds like that is just part of your, yeah, habits or yeah. what do we call that? But especially since 9-11. Really, I, I dove in much, much more intensively at that point. I mean, to the point where I think I, I added another, you know, challenge to my failing marriage by launching into, you know, that additional passionate engagement. Hmm, I can edit this out, but it seems a bit ironic that your drive to connect with other people yeah. was an issue in, in your marriage. Yeah. Um, that sounds You're painful. <laughs> quite right. I wound up feeling deepened connectivity with others in the world through the, the immersion in writing, but it did create more separation at home where the resonance just didn't, didn't work, you know, wasn't working somehow. Too many, too many difficulties had, uh, had already uh, ensued and done some kind of irreparable bit of harm. Mm. No, I was definitely part of that. I was a difficult character when I was younger. <laughs> But with your children, do you feel that it is something that your children appreciate and recognize in you and about you and recognize you through the poetry? I think so. Uh, I think one of, one thing is I know that they feel that they don't have to worry about dad, hmm. uh, even if dad lives alone, because they know that dad is really uh, uh engaged very, very, very vigorously in his own creative pursuits. 
uh, and I'm grateful for that. I, I also know, you know, on a more specific level, uh, my, you know, my older son really gets the poems that I happen to send him now and then. Um, he asks me how it's going. Uh, he pursues his own very idiosyncratic pathway, partly, I think, out of implicit encouragement that that's what we get to do in life, sees that in me. My middle child is a professional musician, jazz musician, and he's very literary, and he helps me with my editing and submission uh, efforts uh, for a fair wage at times. And my daughter is a writer, aside from other things, and she has a novel in verse coming out in June. Ah. Yeah. So you have been an inspiration, as well as a, as well as it being a what a, a way of communication and a way of connecting. It's also become a, a really good form of being a role model. It sounds like. Well, I think I've uh, encouraged them all to be as quirky as they damn well please. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's. I noticed. Um, in two of the poems, there was something, and I don't know how much I'm reading into this, but I was curious because this talks a lot about family in, in the book, but you have a poem that talks a bit about a distance between your father and you called Serene, and then a link to, in the very next poem you bring up your grandfather in the poem called Innocence. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was glad to see that poem got republished just recently in a, like an annual anthology where the editor liked it. She had me change the beginning and it's renamed Sunfish, but it's the same poem, <laughs> which is wonderful. And, and it's true that my grandfather was a... Um, a more palpable presence for me uh, as a little kid than my father could be. My dad was busy uh, earning uh, his little fortune for us all, making a success of himself, uh, you know, in the world and uh, succeeding as a provider for us at home. Um, but he was very caught up in it, you know, a young man, very driven uh, to, to make it uh, in the world of the 50s. And my grandfather worked then too, but he had a, uh, a profound um, inspiration as a grandfather. And primarily with me, the firstborn kid, you know, yeah. and yeah. he was just crazy about me. And, and it was a little crazy. And, you know, my grandmother, his wife, my father's parents, she was a little insane about me too. But, you know, looking back, I said, well, I'll take it. It was pretty <laughs> terrific craziness. Yeah. on balance and uh so he was taking me here and taking me there and coming over and talking to me and telling me stories and you know taking me to see the trains at the train station and taking me to his army navy store in Balt in the uh, in uh, in not baltimore uh, wilmington delaware mm. and he would take me to the uh the wholesale district of philadelphia where he bought stuff for his store he would uh, take me to the park, he would uh, take me anywhere I wanted to go, really. He would take me to the amusement parks, and he would bring my brother along when he was old enough to come along, and uh, we were out with Grandpa, like, all all weekend, and he came over most evenings, and, you know, he showed me how to put up my fists if somebody 
was hostile and it, it was a very, very fiercely dedicated uh, kind of bond that he had with me and it made a big difference in who I, who I became. Did he support the songwriting and the poetry? I don't think he uh, could get any of that. I think my, <laughs> that's where my dad had a had an edge. Uh, my uh -huh. dad had cultivated his mind, and my grandfather had cultivated, I think, his fierceness in the world, not so much his mind. Yeah. A very, very significant difference. They were dramatically different in some manifest ways, and they were very alike in some deep down ways, as you might guess, father and son. So did yeah. that go over well? Was with your father, was the poetry that you wrote in your attempts to connect, that there must have been painful moments expressed yeah. in those poetry, in the poems. Did, did that help? Was that something that helped you and your father in, in your relationship while he was alive? Well, you know, my dad was an interesting guy. He, he was very interested in my poems. He, he was enthusiastic and highly supportive and just wonderful about it. And he wanted to read them and he wanted to try to understand them. And he, he was fairly able to do that and, and to indicate to me that he did that. And I found certain moments like that very, very comforting and gratifying when I thought, Dad really does get this. Yeah. How, however, something about him held true uh, through to the very end of his life, he had very little tolerance for uh, negative feeling states, the problematic emotions. Mm -hmm. He was a, a, a driven optimist, um, had to look at the bright side, had to see the positive. And, you know, I would say to a fault, it caused him some, some consequences along the way. Um, but that was his way of getting along in the world, was being kind of uh, madly optimistic. Mm. And so... If there was something dark, shadowy, problematic in a poem that he saw, he would basically not see it. He would gloss over that. He would just not get that part. He wouldn't register it. He would process it. That's the truth. Hmm. But maybe that explains why your poetry, this book, is its heavy. It's difficult. It's about your father's death. Um, in fact, in this second... In the second section, of the, the poem that begins, called Loyal, the poem that describes all the things in the room, and you realize, that, oh, the father has died now. It hits you like a ton of bricks, partially because of this hope. It, it, I mean, it's, there's obviously no hope that your father's going to survive, but there is an optimism and a joy of being in the world with your father that suddenly abruptly ends with this poem that yeah. is rather unexpected. Do you think that your father gave you that balance? So this poem isn't, or this book rather, is not a depressing tome about your father's death. It's really quite lovely tribute to you, the relationship as difficult as it was. That's the thing. I mean, um, I guess I must have been engaged through the writing of these poems and through that period of time in an accelerated or deepened process of integrating my gratitude and my frustrations, which I think is what we do, you know, with our relationships as they evolve. We integrate our idealizings and our disillusionments, you know, and there's both. And, you know, there are things <laughs> about my dad that 
I still, you know, I'm so admiring and so grateful and things about him that I could still just bang the table over. And they weave together little by little through the years, through reflection, through dream, through talk, through therapy, through writing. And I think that's 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 the trend that we're meant to be on, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an attest to your mental health, isn't it? I, I think about if I am writing in the midst of something difficult, I don't write well. <laughs> There's nothing integrated about what gets on the page. Um, uh-huh. When you do this, is, does it come out integrated or is that part of your editing process? Then you go back and... Well, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, a sad case. I, I have the critical function up, sitting up, you know, right next to my head with the first line. So I tend to write in a painstaking manner rather than a big gush, which I then pare down. I mean, I have done that. I did it more when I was younger. Um, I think when I used to, like, you know, get drunk, I would do it more. Um, <laughs> but um, now I think the that process of shaping and editing and composing is happening while the expressive spontaneous oomph that wants to emerge is rising so they're happening somewhat simultaneously i wouldn't say that's a sad case but well i I kind of wish sometimes i could just gush and then (laughs) and then you know does this mean you have a cache somewhere of all of the angsty navel-gazing poetry that you wrote when you were 19 or have you always been like this I, I think I did, like, I did gush more when I was younger. I was a wilder person when I was younger, certainly. I think I'm, 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 I'm just more grounded, more reflective, more thoughtful than I used to be, for sure. Yeah. I think that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? Um. I, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so when you were writing and you said you were not exactly thinking about publishing when you were younger who were you reading you know i I have a very uh keen uh and grateful memory of really discovering robert creeley when i was in college Hmm. and one might not looking at creeley say that he was very emotionally powerful but i found that he was I got to hear him read a time or two back in that era, and that helped a lot. Um, but, you know, he he uses very, very keenly uh, discovered enjambments in his work so that each line, whether it's three words or six, nine or two, each line pretty reliably is a thought, a meaning unto itself. And you don't know until you go on to the next line what that meaning unto itself also belongs to as a larger meaning that unfolds in the next line and so on. And he wrote with a kind of observant humility, pared down to just the phenomenology of personal experience now and now and now. And it just moved me because there was something so faithful and true about it. 
and what he observed and the way he he didn't make a big fuss of his own disturbances. He just wrote what he could what he could observe and appreciate and see and and gave it some kind of honor that I found very, very moving. So Creeley was was big for me in that way, and it got me working on the power of the line, I think, more than other influences back then. It made me more self-aware as a maker of poems, like, hey, I can do this in a crafted, thoughtful way. I, you know, not just gush and not just emote and express, and it's not just catharsis, it's not just confessional, you know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I could babble on about, you know, who, who, who were the, the, the early influences, of course, included Ginsburg, um, who was such a fabulous gusher, you know, <laughs> he was wonderful. It seemed like you could just, you know, I mean, it seemed like when you, I, I saw and heard him live too. And he, you know, his poems don't seem like they're written. They seem like he's just saying them now, you know, yeah. and out comes poetry, you know, <laughs> what a, what a brilliant, brilliant, being he was and and very moving and you know very evocative and very much a poet of the generation uh, that was that was that was quite thrilling i got to sit with him at a party once and, and i appreciated how actually very very messed up and uncomfortable he was as a person mm. just sitting next to him and chatting briefly but uh, what a poet god mm. um I, I, uh, my mind shifts to sort of later influences, uh, even though it's not what you've asked me. But uh, just come with um, me. Yeah. I I think I love the work of Louise Glick in a way that is similar to the way I loved the work of Creeley. It's very, very honest, frank, faithful, true, no bullshit, and 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 uh, wonderfully pared down and. You know, she includes herself, certainly. These are poems about self and other. They're very relational poems. Uh, but, but she doesn't uh, grant herself uh, any extra sympathy. You know, she, she's just writing what is and what's true between me and my sister, me and my mother, me and my father and me, uh, uh, me and my, my death or, you know, what have you. And it's just beautiful, beautiful work. And again, it has that effect of helping me feel less alone when I'm reading uh, or hearing the words of someone who's, who's been just deeply as honest as possibly that one can be um, and, and reveals so much that way. Yeah. yeah. And you've already said that's that's not only something you admire, it is actually what you strive for and the entire reason why you publish poetry and why you began writing as a child is to make other people feel less alone or to make yourself feel less alone. But it's both. It's yeah. it's it really, really both. It's I mean, what what is it for us? It's connection. So there's a self and an other implicit in every communicative act or gesture. You know, there can't be otherwise. I mean, writing poetry has taught me the vast pleasures of solitude, which I confess I would not be able to enjoy if I didn't busy myself with the poetry. Just being by myself is no damn fun and has no real meaning. But being by myself in a way that might uh, lead to a discovery of something worth sharing, 
when I come back into civilization, mm. that's that's a meaningful solitude, you know. Well, I've never asked anyone this question in an interview, but I've discussed it quite a bit with other poets. This idea that as writers and poets, we very often say, oh, we write for ourselves. We do it because we have to. We couldn't not write poetry. But at the same time, there's a bit of a, a, a catch-22 in that we can't be doing that if our goal is to reach and communicate with other people. We require other people to read our work in order to meet that goal. And is that making sense? Yeah. That well, for you... How important now, you said after 9-11, you started looking to publish, you started making that an, uh, a goal in a way. It was something that you wanted to do more of. Would you feel as satisfied as a poet now if this book hadn't been published, if your, if your work wasn't available, if people hadn't seen it in the journals, and you weren't down at the pub? <laughs> would you no. still enjoy the poetry in the same way? I, I think I would, I would still enjoy it on the basis of what I was sort of trying to sort of say earlier that, that you know, even if nobody ever reads it, mm -hmm. I've had an experience to some extent already of communicating just because words are implicitly um, in that space between a self and an other. You know, I wouldn't be able to escape the fantasy that somebody's going to find this somewhere if I, you know did like maybe Lee Poe and dropped it in the water off the bridge as soon as I wrote it, I would still fantasize that some kid's going to pick it up off the river's edge and read it and go show his mom, you know? Yeah. Like, it's inescapable, that sense of an other hearing it or reading it. But I am way, way more encouraged and glad and fulfilled and feel like I've lived more fully and been in, in the world with other people, you know, I've rolled my sleeves up and joined the game when I see a you know, poems accepted for publication or books come out or, you know, once in a while somebody gets back to me and says, I read this, this hits the spot for me, man, you know it, and I know it, and wow, you know, I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm really, I'm really at the party, you know, that's what, yeah. that's what I, yeah. So is there a particular poem that you would like someone to find if you threw it off the bridge? A specific poem that you would hope somebody would say, ah, I feel a connection, I feel less lonely now. Oh, that's a really, boy, one poem out of the whole. <laughs> um, there was, there's one I wrote uh, called This Day, which uh, I guess I, I feel was a pretty good success in this striving to connect with people, um, both personally and as sort of members of the community of Earth, you know, mm. not just personal life rooted, but but kind of like you know we we really are all together in this. It has that element in it. Let me just give it a go here. Okay, that's great. This day, the earth held this house close and brought it round out of the dark. This chest remembers to widen again, in pours the good air. 
the heart still knows to take its own share and offers up the rest. The blood down its deltas visits the countless cells. The muscles are fed. And on a wish for water, they hinge the limbs. The bones ensemble stands out of its bed. By several footfalls toward the faucet, it proves possible to lower and turn the head. Part these lips at a small stream and receive this clean gift of the rain needed to live. How can I be the fountain of my fortune through all the smoke and confusion? May my words find a current, this ink hold fast to its leaf as it floats to meet the prisoner, the gatekeeper, wanderer camped at a wire fence, kid who sleeps with the gun his father left him. Luck is a demon. How this day, like water, like air, can I enter your life? I can't see your face. I don't have your name. I don't know your despair. And this is our house. Those are my favorite kind of poetry where the body is used as a metaphor for inner, inner realities. Thank you for listening to This Choice Podcast, this time with the poet Jed Meyer. Please check thischoicepodcast.com or our Facebook page for links for more information about Jed and his work. This choice is a labor of love and curiosity. Please do what you can to support the efforts of poets and the small and independent publishers we rely on as readers and as writers. This is Ren Powell. I hope you will join me again soon.